This is a, a biota recording, uh, February 11th, the, uh, the, day, of the, the yes. day of the resignation of Hosni Mubarak of Egypt. <laughs> so, uh, well, welcome to a biota podcast that's been a long time coming, uh, in terms of actually being on location. of what, The area that I'm referring to is Shea Damer, because it's a, a collection of a variety of buildings uh, and other, uh, other wandering places. Uh, but no, it's a real luxury to be here, Bruce. So thank, thank you. It's you for, uh, a pleasure to finally have host you and your brother here. <laughs> yes, in yeah. the drive up, uh, in fact, before we even reached the airport, uh, my brother was asking about how long we'd known each other uh, and the kind of time that I was in the Bay Area and all this kind of stuff and the history of biota and all these things. And yes, it is, I guess it's been maybe 12, maybe even 13 years of kind of communication, probably more than that now actually, mm-hmm. if I come to think mm-hmm. of it uh, and yeah, seeing the photos online just don't, doesn't do the place justice compared to actually wandering around it. Thank you. Uh, so no, it's a luxury to be here and thank you for uh, inviting us both. Um, so it's been a while since the last uh, Biota podcast recording and in large part that's been due to the fact that I've been trying to get this 1993 writing out, which I, I passed a a soon-to-be-released copy to Bruce mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and my uh, sense is that that project aside from actually now getting it out and uh, and having it all happen is uh, pretty well concluded which means I can return to the um, Biota Transcripts uh, project uh, which I think that I have five so far there's going to be a whole tome of that devoted to the Evo grid um, and uh, you're just, I guess, in the final throes of getting the PhD ready, Bruce. I am writing draft three of the PhD, and um, <laughs> it's coming together very well. And we'll see what the. I'm doing a mock examination in Dublin, Ireland, uh, on Thursday of this coming week. So it's my my out of town, my tryout <laughs> on the real Viva, or or defense as they call it here in North America, would be in the su- summer or so. So if I can get it done, right. Yeah. Yes. I, being here, I uh, I was uh, searching for a chapter to pass on to Bruce, which also linked to a Jeff Kloon chapter, which was one of the biota recordings that will be in the first uh, transcripts, because the Jeff um, Jeff Kloon was just the energy in particular. I know Jeff's come up here and met with you mm-hmm. as well. Uh, it was a relatively short biota live recording, but in terms of sheer text, I think it'll be one of the most voluminous ones, and that will probably head up the first of the biota transcripts um, because I think he just covers so many areas uh, links it together beautifully But um, so this year for biota is going to be quite interesting, the plan was to do the biota 5 conference at uh, Iskabibble but unfortunately the connections with Iskabibble seem to have kind of fallen apart in large part I think due to the fact that Dick, Joseph and uh, Liz apparently can't get funding to attend it Mm. so I really want to put this out to the community associated with do we postpone Biota 5 until perhaps next year or, you know, whether we should uh, try to uh, work with the Iskabibble folk uh, to get it in Salt Lake City. Um, But time is pretty well running out with that and this one has sent me quite a bit of correspondence associated with with what our plans will be and I said I'd save this chat for the time to really discuss that. Um, So, Bruce, you had some anticipation of actually hosting something biota related here at some stage do you think that's a 2012 kind of it probably is we built this this stage 
that you've seen the octo mm-hmm. stage mm-hmm. up uh, in the upper meadow and the idea was to have an events building there which would be a fabric building of some kind and just have a group of not really you know more than 15 people yes but intense conversations designed to be recorded for podcasting certainly certainly yeah. and take on maybe take on this this divide between um, the modeling the debate between modeling abstract universes to to witness bio-inspiring or bio-inspired phenomena versus the modeling of chemical universes yes uh, and how does it all factor how do you get origin of life people who are doing this protocells work you know uh, how do you get this enormous gulf of the world that they are in and their cognitive space with the world of deep, you know, deep artificial life where they're looking at, uh, or, the, you know, as Dick says, the, the origin of artificial life or the, ar- the uh, you know, the, ar- the uh, artificial li- origin of life. Certainly. And I think also the, I mean, certainly the stuff that I'm experiencing with Noble Ape currently in terms of the social aspects and the reaching into the social sciences it's quite ironic actually because bob mottram having spent i don't know six months working on noble ape is now using it to actually map real world political connections Hmm. so he's kind of taken the uh, you know ask yourself are you a monkey in a simulation uh, um you know I, i don't know motto that was used with noble ape and taking it to actually explore a wide variety of quite curious political connections so I think the there are so many angles associated with what's going on currently with artificial life, and particularly also I've had some correspondence in a rather hefty tome from Dave Kerr uh, in Canada, and I think the the nature of having fifteen folk here talking probably I don't know I don't know whether limiting it to a particular area, even the particular area of fascination, is maybe slightly premature because I think probably by the time we get to 2012 things may have gone in a wide variety of completely different directions as well mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah it's going to be an interesting it's going to be an interesting uh, meeting and I think certainly the opportunity to as you say have people both very much embedded within the community and also very much outside of the community uh, would be really very interesting and I think also particularly here with the connections SRI um, you know, a wide variety of, of places uh, in this kind of general vicinity, the potential to do larger and smaller groups coming from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people could only get here for, say, a week, uh, you know, they, they do two two days here, maybe SRI does something and, you know, makes it more publicly accessible and these kind of things. I think there are many possibilities, but certainly this is, uh, you know, this is the vision with regards to Biota 5 that I certainly have as well. So, yeah, it, I think... If, if we did a, you know, public, kind of like we've been talking about with Terence McKenna, Beyond mm-hmm. 2012, mm-hmm. you do a, <clears throat> a public venue. You do you do kind of different kinds of venues. So you do a public venue, which is talks, but the invited public. So you have two, three hundred people. Yeah. But then you have the, the conference with with individual sort of tracks and presentations but then if you have these intense salon type events yes they're you know we're talking about the the terence beyond 2012 being at esalen yes so then you're really limited to 
15, 20 people. Yeah. Or here, you know, there would be the salon kind of. Certainly. But I think the the idea that they're all for, that there are different people that would be interested in different parts of that. I mean, certainly the beauty of SRI as a location is that it has a very heavy kind of research science analytical kind of element to it. So maybe more of the vision stuff could be done here with mm-hmm. a smaller group and yeah. then the more scientific presentations. And I think really that... So what we've done here is basically said Iskabibble can do Iskabibble. We'll aim for 2012 with regards to Bio to 5. We should, and we should do an event here. Yeah. And then we should do... If we can get SRI, O'Share is still, still yeah. Can, yeah. there. I think um, the thing with SRI that's interesting, and certainly I found that through my Noble Apex experience and others have, have done it with the stuff, is that they're... Yeah, I'm. I'm still curious, kind of, how SRI is basically using the kind of after-hours artificial life component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do get the sense that the stuff that we're contributing is being utilised. I would like a, perhaps a bit more disclosure associated with how it was being utilised. Um, but certainly, just having it as a space is a is a luxury. Uh, so anyway, I think this is probably something that we're putting out to the community. The conversations mailing list has gone relatively silent as well and I think this is somewhat what we predicted with the idea of the artificial life winter in terms of people just going and finding work and things Mm -hmm. like that and having to look at basic survival but it was interesting talking to Gerald uh, towards the end of last year because he's through this kind of reinvention that many folk have had to go through due to the economic conditions he has created well not an artificial life centric company but certainly a company that will utilize artificial life in doing quite interesting historical and analytical research associated with um well, i guess you'd call them artifacts or various things in, mm-hmm. in europe um i'm not sure if you heard that podcast. Didn't, didn't hear that no but it's fascinating stuff and i've been tracking gerald's uh, movements through facebook and other other related discussions for folks listening in the roads getting here i mean if you're familiar with kind of mountainous roads then you know they're not particularly hairy but uh if you're a city dweller, you might find the roads here a little... Uh, <laughs> it, it, it filters out the riffraff. Yeah, well, it filtered me out for, uh, I guess, the past 14 years. So <laughs> having been the riffraff that was filtered out, uh, I do understand. Um, but yeah, so returning to um, returning to Biota 5, I guess the, the plan is probably to start getting folk... Um, getting folk who are interested in participating and then just working out the locations, because... What would be the ideal time to have it here? Were you still thinking the early summer? Was that? I think I think so. I mean, certainly, if you can get an SRI location like May or June, yeah, when the rains have stopped. Because yeah. here, if you you can get rains into May, yeah, but then it's beautiful until October, November. Yeah. So it could be then, and and if it's, you know, if it's before people take their holidays, so. May or June up to a certain point and then September or October are mm. the, the prime conference seasons. Mm. Mm. Or in the middle of summer, but then you may lose them. People Certainly. have gone off. Certainly. Well, I think the general feeling associated with the Iskabibol event was that we would have been um, we would have been pretty well second-class citizens. I didn't really have a problem with that if we were going to get the people, but losing... Uh, both Dick and Liz, basically, as two of the hummingbird. Hummingbird. As two of the uh, 
Well, primary contributors, I mean, obviously Joseph Sekbach as well has really welcomed the artificial life community into his writings. Um, and I was reading uh, Steve Grant's uh, creation this morning, and I don't know, I guess I have the luxury of actually writing with Steve Grant on a regular basis, thanks to the Sekbach Gordon Swan et al. books. Gordon Armada yeah. books. So I think there's a, and certainly a, you know, my conversations with Gerald, I've pointed out that these books are completely open. I think anyone in the community uh, could write for them and be perfectly accepted. I think the quality, and well, the mainly the diversity of writing, but also the quality of writing indicates that uh, you know some of these people are uh, are chosen through the uh, through the nature of the work. But I certainly think there are a lot more folk in the artificial life community who could contribute to these times and only add to their girth. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think the um, the plan to um, to have something next year in this part of the world with multiple locations is probably the right way to go. Uh, so we're really, I guess, sending the message out now that that's the mm-hmm. plan. Yeah, I think the I've been to several events at SRI, and they're they're really it's a beautiful spot. It's mm-hmm. ample parking and certainly good organization. I mean, the, the staff are. If you can get it to be an inside SRI, yes, yes, event in their con- their international conference center is very nice. Yes, yeah. If we can do it, mm. well, I think there are also other locations uh, that, that may be available to us as well. And I think uh, certainly this is part of the kind of announcing it uh, more than a year in advance to really get a chance for the kind of planning that wasn't in the the escapable uh, thing to come together. Uh, and I think the perhaps even doing it trackless for a good portion of it or maybe one track uh, might be the way to go as well the feedback that we were getting with the possibility of Escapable doing you know, five, six tracks of mm-hmm. which we would be scattered throughout I think uh, underwhelmed a lot of folk uh, mm. <laughs> particularly because they wanted to have the kind of smorgasbord selection um, that I guess has traditionally been the Biota conferences so yeah yeah, yeah. So Bruce, you're going to Dublin. You, I guess, are periodically going to Dublin now, associated with the PhD. Mm-hmm. But have you thought about what happens after the PhD? Well, uh, interestingly enough, the uh, <clears throat> I mentioned this to Dick, and I've mentioned it to Joseph Sackback that perhaps out of this dissertation could come a book project. Yes, an invited book project um, on the boundaries between basically trying to launch the field computing life's origins i.e. the chemically inspired de novo ab initio simulation movement in chemistry uh, versus the uh, you know working together hand in hand with the the chemical protocell origin of life Mm -hmm. And, and this, of course, has been spelled out by Bedeau and all Certainly, the, yes. the open questions of artificial life, but it's all spelled out there, but really fleshing it out and creating a volume that would, that would be the foundation stones. Because the fourth chapter of the thesis is the roadmap. Mm-hmm. It's, if you're going to do this kind of work, what do you need to do? Mm. You, know, you need simulation on an industrial scale. Yes, like the protein folding at home. Certainly. Kind yes. Of, yeah. You, you need in, uh, different kinds of, of chemistry, 
than to have been done industrial scale chemistry. Yes. That is automated uh, for the use of search, that kind of thing. And then all of the societal concerns about artificial origins of life. Certainly. Um, which can be duplicated in chemical systems. Yeah. No, this is your, your primordial gray goo fear. Certainly. But uh, returning to, I guess, my favorite part of the Evo Grid uh, collection of movies. The notion of actually printing from digital to to organic that is always because that also addresses the issue associated with the software interface, which I think is something that Mark Badeau has kind of progressively pushed uh, for soft artificial life to start considering that there will eventually be a software interface into the real world, and I think that's an interesting both philosophical and also computational idea. Um, I remember when we were showing my brother the EvoGrid uh, videos last night, my sense was that Flint was heading up some of that work in terms of the computer interface to that. Where do you see that, that idea of actually printing into the real world coming from now? And do you think it's going to be more a, a kind of industrial end or is it still part of research science? I think that one of the... And this is, this is a... This is a good topic for for this potential book. Mm-hmm. Is printing is a mechanism by which you are with high probability placing stuff. Certainly, placing toner and whatnot. Yeah, that is anathema to the way that biology works. Certainly, unless you've got massive machinery. Yes, you know, like proteins, enzymes, yeah. etc. So, you know. Biology is a stochastic kind of a of a game. Mm. It's very much like the, the critique of the of nano the nanotechnology of Ralph Merkel and company. Certainly. So maybe it's a bad metaphor. Maybe printing is printing a bad is metaphor. Printing is actually a bad metaphor. So w- the it, correct metaphor is. Uh, it's it's almost the correct metaphor is mixtures, mm-hmm. but the mixtures are are directed, and the mixtures direct themselves. So. For example, very much like how the EvoGrid software platform works, you start 100,000 blends of things, mm-hmm. and then you, uh, you're you doing these the enrichment sampling, as Dick Gordon calls mm-hmm. it, and then you're you're taking the, the rich blend that you like and combining it with another blend in order to get a, a combined effect. Mm-hmm. So you may get... You're trying to create an autocatalytic cycle. So really the... The simulated history of that, the history of actually those combinations, is what will go into the chemical process that will produce the output. Yeah, yeah, and then then there's a ratcheting that goes on. So now you've suddenly got yourself a... So the idea of the cameo simulation, mm-hmm. which was the ALIFE 12 paper, was you, you came up with three or four simulated soups that one of them generated something interesting like the formation of membranes. The other one, and this is way in the future... The formation of a replicating molecule, or the formation of a, of, of a metabolic cycle, mm-hmm. and you take those simulators and you cram them into a very big simulation engine, and you put them together. You, you put the contents and the the initial conditions, and you try to make them run as a single unit. Mm-hmm. And that would be what you'd also do in the chemistry. So you'd, you'd you'd and this is what these people are doing. I mean, they're trying to you know get up get a vesicle or a vesicle to form and then they're getting uh, you know, RNA or something to form and try to see if it gets infused into the vesicle or mm-hmm. into the membranous structure 
by wet drying or something like that. This is exactly how chemistry works anyway. But if you automate the simulator, you and you can automate the chemistry like PCR does mm-hmm. for for co- for reading genomes. Mm-hmm. So then you, I think, have a chance at at, at getting somewhere. So it's the, it's the combined automation. Then, of course, you find that your combined chemical experiment has gone completely another direction. So you have to go back and recalibrate your simulator. Because mm. your simulator is way out ahead. Your simulator is trying to be predictive. It's trying to say, now if you add, put this admixture in here, it should go this way. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it probably possibly won't. So then you're, you're changing your models and mm-hmm. simulate again, and it's an iterative process. But a, a huge amount of automation would be needed. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it's just it's just uh, you know in a hundred years we won't have gotten very far. Mm. Mm. That's very interesting. So, so the in fact the process that is being thought about in simulation will also be the process that is that is mechanized and mm-hmm. and I guess the, the beauty of doing it in a simulation space is also that simplifications and improvements that you find in the simulation space will then directly map onto the to the mechanical space as well and and it's a huge potential cost savings mm. so an example is the work we did for NASA the idea is that you drive a simulated rover down a simulated slope you know a thousand times and change the dynamics of the wheels and and the mass of the vehicle, whatever, and you do all of that, and then by the time you're bending metal, that's what they call it, mm-hmm. you're, you're building a test article to put in a sandbox on Earth to, to test a new concept. That's an order, that's two orders of magnitude more costly to bend Certainly. metal. So you're bending the metal in the right ways, you're, you're going to get a better test article. Mm. So you save all this trial and error in, in, in atoms. Mm. Same thing with this going to the chemical evil grid because you'll you'll opt out of experiments that you don't aren't really going to produce so so the evil grid you know we showed you the statistics last night when we had one where there was just over 200 200 selected frames that mm-hmm. had produced results we wanted and 40,000 or 14,000 abandoned frames that's a big computational cost savings certainly yeah and so think of those as vials vials of chemicals that mm. you, you didn't have to fill up and yeah. clean and process. And, and returning in. to the Mars rover metaphor, because it is a very good description, the thing with the Mars rover is now the, the kind of things that they're finding, having cleared up, as you say, the, the many, many test cases, are actually really fascinating problems in and of themselves. And when you get rid of the, the general space of problem and get down to the fine granularity of actually... I, I think you know, the, the safety the safety nature of it the um the i guess dealing with the big problems uh, the hard expensive problems in simulation space so you can deal with the fun problems uh mm-hmm. on location i think is uh yeah is a, is a very good uh, metaphor so what you're describing kind of post phd is assembling a group of folk together for a book but there's also the potential, and this has really gone through the whole kind of summoning the Evo grid narrative that's come through the, the biota discussions in particular. There's also the potential for actually creating either a formal or informal organisation that is, um, I guess, basically tasked to. I don't know. You, you continue this vision, Bruce. You continue this vision. Well, the <clears throat> the idea, and I, I seem to chronically do this over the years, is in the mid-90s I created the Contact Consortium and the Avatars Conferences, and that 
led to the creation of formal and informal groups in virtual worlds, you know, much sooner perhaps, or, or different people met. So there was the VLearn initiative and many, many other initiatives came mm-hmm. out. So it helped to actually launch a field, which was the field of multi-user social creative virtual worlds with and I published a book called Avatars in 97. Yes. And so that would be kind of the similar thing for for this which would be cool or computational origins of life or computing life's origins something like that um, launching a book which helps to launch a seminar to bring the, the disparate parties because in, in my travels of the world in the last few couple of years um, I've, I've started to collect the people and I'm realizing it's the same thing as with avatars in 1995-96 yeah. there are all these groups that are doing the same thing but they don't have a venue for what they do yeah. they, they don't have a, a platform they're doing like there's a group in, in Leeds that is doing excellent work on uh, like theoretical and then building systems where computing through multiple levels, <clears throat> multiple hierarchies of complexity. Mm. You know, they're really doing the hard thinking. Mm. But there's but Leeds, no... If we, if we yeah. pause with just leads, because I was interviewed on uh, BBC Radio 4 in, I don't know, maybe 2003, and there was a fellow from Leeds on that interview. Uh, and Leeds has been really the quiet achiever in a lot of this mm-hmm. kind of research. They started, I understand with forestry models and then got down into the biology of the forestry models and then moved in a different direction and it is a group uh, that has really as as you are noting kind of come to this through a variety of very interesting simulation paradigms which has kind of left them with a I guess a, a good um, good scientist toolkit worth of uh, worth of uh, ideas um, it's a sorry Susan Stepney's group. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I think what you're describing here is really uh, finding the others in terms of uh, mm-hmm. creating something where you can actually collect these uh, these particular pieces to the puzzle and put it all together. Um, and I think the interesting thing associated with the Eberger specifically is that it is a very much a mix of uh, industry, academia, and potentially even hobbyists. Mm-hmm. And in terms of that kind of mix, um, finding the others tends to favour one of these three groups and uh, negates other groups. And certainly when I've talked recently about uh, the biota community, the group that we really found was the obsessive hobbyists that tend to sometimes be academic, sometimes be in industry, but we have kind of missed other areas. How do you see, in terms of the summoning component, to bring this group together to have the right mix of all these components. And that, that is a challenge, because if you have a, a Springer book, mm. it's going to be academics mostly mm. that are writing for it, because they're just used to cranking the stuff out. Yeah. And so the, uh, I think that perhaps in the book, it would make great sense. I mean, someone like Jeff Klune could certainly write a, a chapter on that. Certainly. Um, but to also write a survey chapter of what's being done in the hobbyist community so if the hobbyists are not really into writing a full on academic chapter, yeah. you interview them Yes, you know, maybe you could even yeah. take that the on. The surveying is an interesting I mean, certainly, and really this has been a project for the past three, four years even through Biota 
is to try to prompt the hobbyist community to get more in tune with what an academic chapter is not as something to fear mm -hmm. but as something which is actually quite scalable in a three four month period of time and what i found particularly um i wrote in a book called uh, nature inspired informatics uh it started with 99 academics and me Mm -hmm. Then it was 50 academics and me. Then it was 12 <laughs> academics and me. And then it was 8 academics and me. And what I realised through that was all this stigma, which I think the hobbyist community has, associated with those academics that will ever be interested in the stuff that we're doing, is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think in the process of doing a surveying, and I'd, I'd be more than happy to do a surveying, although increasingly I feel my knowledge of the artificial life community could be greatly improved by more people kind of getting in contact. Unfortunately... The problem with Biota was we got a kind of two generations worth of hobbyists involved, and then it's our responsibility to go and kind of find the others find or the bring, others, them, yeah. bring them in. So, I mean, this really goes out to the community as well. Thankfully, there are a number of folks who are actively looking and sending links and this kind of stuff. So I think um, particularly vehicles like YouTube are actually creating a lot of the connections and the kind of new... Uh, generation you, of hobbyist search, community. You search YouTube and you'll find someone's put something well, yes, up. Well, yes, it's yeah. very curious because yeah, and it it tends not to be specifically artificial life keyword related. But anyway, returning to your original point, so I think what I'd like to do through the surveying is also try to encourage folks that were in the hobbyist community to also start embracing because I think certainly with academic publication, I was looking at the most recent artificial life journal, which I think is the thinnest I've ever seen it. Mm. The uh, In part, the winter problem is actually affecting the academic community as much as it's affecting every other community. And I think in terms of funding, in terms of a lot of these kind of visionary groups, they are shriveling or moving in different directions, and that is in large part due to the funding sources that are drying up as much in academia as they are in industry currently. So I guess... My view is that this is the ideal time for the hobbyists that are winterized, so to speak, right. that are they're kind of in their bunkers, you <laughs> know, running their simulations, doing whatever they're doing, to actually start considering writing as being not just a luxury, but really a central part to what they are doing in terms of actually communicate. Because there's, you know, there's an element in the hobbyist community that's always said that the academic community has done its own thing, and certainly the academic community has kind of pushed back against that as well. But I think increasingly the stuff that is coming out of uh, hobbyist development, particularly, I mean, even the early hobbyist work that's never been properly documented and put out into the academic community, I think, uh, you know, the time has really come for uh, for these things to actually be, you know, be righted. And I think the, mm -hmm. the nature of particularly the current uh, flurry of Springer publications associated with the origin of dot, dot, dot... Um, really lends itself to a wide variety of uh, artificial life hobbyists, be it from structure to community to uh, to resource use. I'm sure that there's going to be some ecology-centric origin of somewhere through there um, that I think a number of the artificial life uh, simulators and structure and movement and these kind of things. I mean, I don't know how granular the origin of series will get. Uh, my anticipation through communicating with Dick was that we're going to be seven, and I think there are now maybe ten titles. Mm. Uh, but even through that, I think there's a great deal of potential for pretty well every artificial life simulation that has ever been created to have some contribution to that. But no, I agree. I think there's a need... And this is something that I, a conversation that I have periodically with Steve Grant, who does occasionally write histories of the artificial life community. Um, however, as is the problem, and you find this too, Bruce, when you talk about the artificial life community, the, 
the tendency to stop in the mid-90s, particularly because of the mm-hmm. quality of writing and documentation that was coming through that period and also the folks that were involved, is really quite great. I've had recent correspondence actually with Jeff Plune. I think he posted to the Biota mailing list associated with this too, about teaching or explaining the amazing and kind of continuing vents of artificial life and game development mm-hmm. uh, and the difficulties associating with just... So I guess there there is still really a need for uh, probably a Gordon Seckbach et al. size volume associated with the history of artificial life too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's something that Steve Grant and I periodically ping each other about and I hear from other folk as well. I think Wikipedia, there was hope there, but that's pretty well dropped off. And the diversity and the chronology of things, particularly because the things that are associated with people's recollections, it's kind of difficult to, uh, you know, we're getting to a kind of 20, 25, 30-year period of yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I found fascinating, I had this conversation with Steve Grand frequently, uh, is the idea that the accounts that he gave through the 90s actually change over time. So even in a small period of time, people's recollections change. So, yeah, I think the ability to get a surveying of the artificial life community, even a small surveying, um, I mean, for example, a lot of the stuff associated with um, when the when the Evo grid uh, critters, for want of a better term, have actually been printed and they colonise the asteroid and they interact, mm-hmm. that's Jeffrey Ventrella's work mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. very much associated with uh, with strange computationally generated creatures that are now populating spheres. So I think just mm-hmm. through the community, there are a number of components that lend into some part of the Evo grid uh, description. And I think also, I hadn't seen the full clip, I can't remember, we did a Biota Live associated with Bankers Beware, which related to the amazing, um, it was a Masters of Architecture student, what was the fellow's name? Rami L. Rami L. Um, associated with the EvoGrid uh, critters eating London and then basically uh, transforming it into a kind of post-apocalyptic uh, steelscape or what have you. Um, and so I think the artificial life art community is also a part of the community that we, and sadly, I mean, we've had the Vita folk on periodically to remind us that there are tens, if not hundreds, of artificial life artists out there. Large part in the Spanish-speaking part of the world, which is kind of curious that we think of, you know, I mean, I'm just here at Bruce's kind of going through uh, various art books last night... Uh, Stephen Brook and various other names from the artificial life art community, but my sense is that we are, and probably the, the way to fix this is actually because Vita produces bound copies for each prize. Yeah. I think they must be up to about 13 or 14 now. So I think the trick is probably to fork out the uh, probably thousands of dollars required to actually get these bound copies in a full collection and go through it. Because the surveying of the artificial life art community really hasn't been good on my watch with biota and i think it's a difficult thing to survey anyway i mean that's why it's a luxury having uh having people like uh nell and and um, uh sally jane as as contributors to biota because they are at least surveying it in a kind of hierarchical sense um so yes there are so many components to this thing bruce going into the future Mm -hmm. there really (laughs) are So do you still hold the vision that there will be uh, an EvoGrid Institute at some stage, a small 
self-funding group that will yeah uh, it would be a wonderful thing and dave deemer who has become a very important mentor for this effort at uc santa cruz is involved on the the boards or advising several new ventures in origin of life studies Mm. and one of them is a fellow who may be starting to issue small grants Mm. and has encouraged me to apply for it Mm. um yeah i mean if the, the one one method of keeping this thing going is is just grant for grant, like mm. I've done ten years with NASA, mm. and you can keep a small team going virtual. So there's an interesting other angle here. While we're traveling through the Bay Area, we're staying with a fellow in Santa Clara who runs um, well relatively big money contests, you know, millions of dollars for mm. particular discoveries, and I think this was certainly. Um, uh, Justin Lyons' kind of contribution to to the biota discussion uh, midway through, and we've had various other discussions associated with contests. Do you think there's a potential for EvoGrid solutions to particular contests being a funding source as well? Because there are these kind of biochemistry contests that are run periodically I that there could be EvoGrid solutions where, for. Where that comes in is the chemo grid, because truthfully, you know, the the, the commercially viable partner to the EvoGrid is the ChemoGrid, which mm. is saying if you can build a general purpose simulator to do um, bond formation and breaking and change the parameters on real molecular dynamics engines, you can do all kinds of useful science. And so the interesting thing is that protein folding at home, which is done out of Stanford by, at the Panday Lab at Stanford, very successful project, uses the same engine we're using, Gromax, to do the protein folding mm. is a problem. And, of course, we wouldn't use Gromax in the next iteration probably, but it's a validation for the approach. So they're doing the geometries of existing molecules and showing how those geometries change. We would be doing formation of new compounds. Mm. And, and there's a panoply of, of commercial uh, applications for this. Mm. So... Um, there's there is that side that every time you promote, it's like game development, producing 3D <laughs> chipsets for the yes, rest of us. Yes. Every time you promote the chemo grid, and you manage to get you could get a fairly large grant for the chemo grid. Yes. Um, yes. But then you can spin that off and use it for the evo grid vision. So there's where the commercial and the yes. pure research uh, marry. Yeah. I mean, returning to the topic of sections of the community that biochars kind of touched on occasionally but the industrial uses of artificial life and certainly the um experience that we had with the fellow from um my mind's gone completely blank now but we did have a fellow who contributed ed suffered suffered from i can't think of the company but he has since pulled back i think in large part because he gave us a number of quite uh, intimate disclosures <laughs> associated with his work um indicates that there are probably a few uh, and I also get this sense from GlaxoSmithKline as well, that there are, these kind of companies are probably doing a lot of the same stuff in parallel, but very much quietly. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that interests me about reaching out to those folk, and this is a discussion that I've had with Mark Badeau as well, is how do we actually create an open environment where there are proprietary elements to it as well? And I think that may be some of what you're describing associated with the chemo grid. I mean, if you get into circumstances where you get funding but components have to be under NDA and these kind of things, mm-hmm. how do you think that perturbs the EVO grid? Well, you use... Uh, we did that actually with the NASA work. Mm-hmm. You use a dual license. 
So for example, use LGPL, which will, would allow commercial realizations of, of GPL elements. And so what would happen over time is the, the, the engine, you might decide that the actual computing engine to do the molecular dynamics or whatever level you're doing is open because you need the inputs of research. Mm -hmm. The glue and how it's being done, what the experiments are being done, are are closed and proprietary because mm. it's the experiment. The GlaxoSmithKline would, if they're trying to develop a catalyst or they're trying to develop a, a protein to do something, and they're using, but they need the assembly of the protein. So the the experiment is their business, but the engine is is still open, mm. and, and and including the glue. I mean, with the Evo grid in its totally primordial state now. You have one section where you define experiments, and it says if if a molecular size is such and such compared to the score of, you know, five frames back, drop this frame and return to the previous framing. Mm. That's the logic to drive the experiment, and mm. that logic would be owned by the commercial entity. Yeah, I guess my sense is, particularly with a number of these entities, that they have their own in-house... Every element of the Evo grid they already have in-house basically, mm -hmm. which I've worked on for, you know, generations in terms of maintaining its proprietary structure. And I think philosophically, it may be difficult, I mean, particularly, you know, you, you sign an NDA with, with GlaxoSmithKline, for example, and you go in and you realise that they have actually taken EvoGrid research, you know, 15 years ahead of what you could have imagined, but it was all proprietary and locked down. Your responsibility there is to give, uh, I guess, research mentoring or something like that. That's, the, I think, the difficulty in terms of going into the future because certainly the discussions that we had, even with Ed Suffolk and private discussions that I've had with people that work in these companies, seems to indicate that they have uh, quite advanced methods of doing things, you know, beyond Gromax, beyond these kind of things. Uh, and the interesting part will come, I think, when we start integrating perhaps the visionary component or really the summoning component which mm -hmm. I think is the um, the independent kind of, well I, it's fundamentally open source on some level but also it's a, it's a method um, and I think what may be quite curious and I know that there are folks in industry who listen to these podcasts and you know probably tapping away at the Evo grid within you know their own environment the the yeah I think this is a, this is a philosophical thing that the it extends beyond the artificial life community. It's part of the kind of open source industry integration. But really, the feedback that I had from Mark Badeau and our discussion associated with this was that we need to find a model to start inviting these people into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Because certainly there are some components where they may be 15 years ahead, but there are other components where they're 15 years behind, and the community aspect may be that part. Uh, and the other thing is that there may be an immense lazing if some of these underlying proprietary components were actually exposed, even subtly, even in ideas form. Uh, and I think that's another strong draw card that we could put out to uh, to folks who may be part of kind of proprietary one, industrial science. One um, one indication of this is there's a group in Israel, Doran Lancet's mm -hmm. group, and they have a wonderful uh, sort of artificial chemistry simulator. And we met with them, Peter and I met with them in Denmark, and they're basically saying, look, we are we're ready to scale this up. We would like to put 
multiple or thousands of copies of this simulator within an environment somehow and be able to run more experiments. Mm. And so, of course, there's a lot of code. We're very dependent on Gromax right now, and we would have to rip out Gromax and much more generalize the engine. Mm. But for them as researchers, they were like, yeah, can we plug our engine in? Mm. And because, so you could take a Glaxo SmithKline engine and say, mm. look, just register the engine and the system will, will dump out the state of the objects and their velocity and the mm. energy of the system. And then you do, it's because that, that's a JSON file that's mm -hmm. generic and it's a published standard. Certainly, yeah. And so they could put their proprietary engine in, run it, and get get the benefit of the grid. Yeah. And then to provide that to researchers to use that that particular engine if they want it in an open way, but keep control of the engine itself. Yeah. So there, there's where an actual commercial uh, open coupling works pretty well. Certainly. I also think the 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 many different models, I mean the, the Gromax version that you were using in terms of the very kind of ball and stick uh, basic magnetic force interaction versus uh, quantum mechanics versus uh, subatomic uh, kind of interactions and a variety Electron orbitals. Exactly, yeah. like a, a variety of simulation methods that I know exist, uh, and some have been ported into Gromax, it's just a matter of doing the right configurations. Um, but yeah, I think the ability to get actually quite strange and diverse Evo grids through, and this in itself becomes a good, a very interesting uh, kind of academic testing point, is you run the Evo grid with Gromax lights, you run it with Gromax quantum mechanics, you run it Gromax subatomic, you run it with of independent proprietary and compare results with mm -hmm. known starting points mm -hmm. and then you start actually realizing uh the kind of multiplicity of solutions of the universe that exist currently yeah. as well we, we did this in in the earlier in the 2000s with digital spaces mm. our 3d platform for nasa we plugged in uh three or four physics engines into the same scene mm -hmm. and we had towers of blocks towers of children's Certainly, yes. blocks and then we they were on shaker tables, so we applied the shake to each of these tables, and so then uh, one physics engine had its name on all the blocks, mm -hmm. and we watched how they fell differently. Now, this is at the same time, in the Certainly. same scene, yes. and how they rendered physics. This is, this is um, you know, not soft bodies like hard body Certainly. physics, and we said, oh, there's a, quite a significant difference in the way these blocks Certainly. are falling, and yes. that yeah. sort of embodies... But the, the, yeah, the nature of those kind of tests is that you need multi... The blocks will probably capture one, you know, one ideal one, or maybe a two out of five, or what have you. But you need multiple tests for these kind of because they're all optimized for different kinds of things, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So yes, yeah. Well, I think this has really been a kind of a visionary potential for the future uh, on a deck on a on sunny, a uh, sunny morning uh, kind of discussion. To all out there, the PhD dissertation will be posted publicly in its final, maybe even in its draft form, mm. um, on certainly off of damer.com and evogrid.org. Yes. Uh, and I invite comment because I need every possible critique before I do the defense Yes. Uh, in the summer. So I, I would I would probably publish the draft uh, this weekend somewhere, and then the uh, final maybe by April, if I don't get too many other distractions. But... So the draft can be commented upon by mm. anyone, and we, I need I need critiques of this thing. 
Yes, a large part of my sleepless night last night was trying to track down stuff to pass on to Bruce, actually, based on the time frames associated with that. And I think as others read, uh, read the uh, read the document, they too will probably find you a, a Dick Gordon-like uh, set of references that you mm-hmm. can uh, you can add in there because yeah, really capturing the tapestry of this thing uh, is there are just so many sources. In fact, it's the fact that the biota transcripts associated with the Evo grid isn't currently published may also uh, be a slight detriment, but maybe we could do a, a rush uh, towards an April deadline so we could actually get that text through. I could at least uh, put a reference to it. Yeah, I have, a, I have a, a very good fellow who's doing the transcriptions for me, um, and unfortunately due to just a backlog of my own stuff, I haven't had a chance to uh, get him some through recently. But what I'll do is, um, when I head back to Vegas, put through a priority of the transcriptions associated with the Evo grid. Mm. Um, I don't know whether you'll be uh, able to review the text uh, thoroughly, uh, but what it will certainly do is uh, produce a sense of what it'll look like um, mm-hmm. when it when it comes out. Uh, because my plan was originally to do the non-Evo grid related, relatively more kind of contemporary uh, game development task. Uh, visionary philosophical stuff as the first one and then do the Evo grid one as the second uh, but if your time priorities are the way that they're described and I've had similar time priorities maybe we could switch up that order sure yeah, yeah. yeah. that would be good well Bruce we're, we're waiting to have breakfast here my brother is also waiting to have breakfast with us a little uh, inside uh, inside the recording session for folks listening in so I, I do want to kind of wrap it up now but it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, chat with you Bruce in your own environment uh, and it's a beautiful environment indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. The, um, it's one of the few things where the internet does it no justice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's uh, sufficiently complicated and sufficiently fractal-like that you unfortunately have to be here on location to really get a, a proper understanding of it. So it's a pleasure to, it's a pleasure to be it's here. It's great to have you. And for folks listening in, I welcome all correspondence. Uh, the Biot Live sessions will be restarting, like I said, this book thing has been pretty all-consuming for me and I think the transcripts will probably take its place in terms of some degree of consumption but I do want to give real-time updates to the community through the podcast in terms of the transcripts uh, progress uh, and I think it's going to be a new paradigm. Bruce passed me a few books while uh, last night and said what a pity these books are 150 odd dollars. My vision with regards to the transcripts is that they're going to be under $10 in paper form and uh, probably half that again in electronic form because I think we need to get this out to undergraduates, non-undergraduates, everybody uh, Mm -hmm. in the cheapest possible fashion as fast as possible (laughs) to really get the ideas moving and doing what we've done in podcast format in a different format, in a couple of different formats for folks who would prefer to consume these things in text form. And I have to say, having read the initial transcripts, you do get a different experience out of actually reading the conversations. Uh, so it's a completely different format, and I think folks who have even listened to the um, who listen to the podcast periodically will probably get a lot more out of the written form too. And I also have to thank uh, Bruce and my mutual friend KMO here for really starting this idea in terms of transcripts. Uh, he did one associated with his podcast, The Sea Realm, and I think that really started my thinking in terms of this. And uh, I'm I'm anticipating talking to KMO on a couple of occasions in the near future about this very phenomenon, Bruce. So I'll send on your regards. I let him know that I was coming here, and uh, thank he, you. He passed on his regards. Thank you, and thanks for folks for listening. And I'm sorry once again for uh, for the lack of podcasts recently, but the uh, the numbers will resume, folks. So uh, stay tuned. More bios are coming shortly. <laughs>